0: If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17 is where we are. As we turn to God's Word, let's once again ask for His help. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, today, as always, we need a word from the outside. We need you, Father, to speak to us. And Father, we need to listen and obey. Father, we thank you for your word before us. Would you be pleased to open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, open our minds to know, open our hearts to receive the truth that you have for us today. And in receiving the truth, May our lives be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. We're picking up right where we left off back on the 15th of November, six weeks ago. Um, We are in our series looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission and exposition of the book of Acts. Well, here we are at the start of a new year, and of course, we've all heard them made, and we may have even made them ourselves, New Year's resolutions. Promises made to make all kinds of changes in various areas of our life. Promises to make a change, to do something different. Now, that all sounds well and good, doesn't it? However, not all change is good. Some things need to remain the same. Now one thing that needs to not change but remain the same is the gospel. But what do I mean? Now on the one hand, of course, the gospel cannot change. Why? It's from God. It's His truth. It is truth. It it can't change. God can't lie. On the other hand, since we all know that the gospel is a stumbling block to some and folly to others, we're always tempted to change the message so that it's no longer a stumbling block or folly. We change it, as it were, to make it either too easy on the one hand or too hard on the other, to lower the requirement to nothing or to put the requirement so high that no one could get there but we as individuals and as a church need to resist the temptation to change the message rather we need to recognize that the unchanging and indeed the unchangeable gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, and not only recognize that, but rejoice that God has been pleased to save us and will be pleased to save others by grace through faith in Jesus. Now, when you think about the calling that all Christians have to share Christ, to proclaim Christ, to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God, are you discouraged right now? I mean, really ask yourself, um, are you where you want to be when it comes to sharing Christ within your own family, at work, at school, in the neighborhood, in the community? Now, you may be familiar with this somewhat popular definition of insanity, Doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result or outcome, right? I think we've all been there. Doing the same thing over and over again, and we just hope somehow that things turn out differently. Well, here's the definition of sanity according to God's Word. Proclaiming the same message, the gospel, over and over again, expecting that God will indeed be pleased... To bring different results. And we will see that as we continue in the book of Acts. Different responses, different results. I'm always encouraged, uh, jumping ahead to Athens, um, where Paul, the apostle, a third believe, a third want to hear more, and a third reject. How's that for a very good evangelist? But we'll get to that in a few weeks. What we're going to see in our text this morning is the same message being proclaimed once again. This time in a different place. And as we continue to work our way through Acts, we'll see again the variety of responses to and results from the proclamation of the gospel. It's going to be the parable of the soils. The seed and the soils. Now, are you discouraged right now? when it comes to your efforts to share Christ? Are you in need, like I am, of renewed motivation to proclaim the gospel? Well, I've got good news for all of us. Very good news. You see, God's word, as applied by God's Spirit, will provide both the encouragement and the motivation that you and I and this church needs. From our text, We're going to make a few comments about the mission. After that, we're going to make a few comments about the method. And then we're going to spend most of our time focused on the message. The same message now being proclaimed in a different place. Join with me as I read beginning in verse 17. Excuse me, chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and say, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Let's step back and orient ourselves to Acts. Luke, volume two. It's the transition between the gospels and the letters to the churches. Acts is here in God's word, as all of God's word, to strengthen our faith. And in particular, it strengthens our faith by showing us that Christianity is not just a, Christianity is not a philosophy of life. Christianity is, is grounded in the Acts of Jesus in history. If Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth wasn't who he said he was, then there is no Christianity. If he didn't do what scripture says he did, there is no Christianity. Islam is not like that. Buddhism is not like that. It really doesn't matter what the founders did or didn't do. What matters is do you adhere to the teaching? To be sure, there is teaching in Christianity, but it's teaching centered upon and grounded upon a person, Jesus of Nazareth. It's a selected record here in Acts of all that Jesus continues to do and teach now by his Holy Spirit in his church founded by the apostles. And we're now in the second missionary journey of Paul. Remember in chapter 15, you've got the Jerusalem Council and 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 Paul heads back out Uh, he and Barnabas have a falling out they separate they go their separate ways but he joins with Silas and they leave on their journey and in chapter 16 we see already that Paul gains a new worker Timothy who'll be his partner for the long haul and and we we see that he's given a new vision he's called over to Macedonia. He's called to Europe. Indeed, we saw in chapter 16 that the gospel, as it moves out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, it makes the jump from Asia to Europe. And we know what has happened since then. We saw for the last uh, three weeks that we were in Acts that in the city of Philippi, there were three surprising conversions. Three people in whom the gospel the word about Jesus the word from Jesus changed lives Lydia a businesswoman an unnamed slave girl and then a jailer a middle class civil servant so there in the, Paul and his apostolic or his missionary band is in Philippi and I want to jump back now and 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 read um Beginning in verse uh, 39, so they, that is the magistrates, came and apologized to them, that is Paul and his companions, and they took them out and they asked them to leave the city, so they went out from the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They left Philippi. They were sort of run out of town. Now, turn with me, if you would, over to 1 Thessalonians. Makes sense, right? They're in Thessalonica. He writes a couple of letters back to the church that's established. So if you look at First Thessalonians chapter two, this is what Paul said. Now remember, Luke is describing what happens, and here's Paul's own words. Luke, excuse me, First Thessalonians two: one and two. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. They're run out of town after being put in jail, and now they're bold, they're courageous, they're going to continue proclaiming the gospel and where do they go they go about a hundred miles give or take south southwest from philippi they pass through a couple of towns probably a day's journey to each probably spend the night and they head and they end up in thessalonica the capital city of the roman province of macedonia you see paul is strategic he's going to a capital city a commercial center an administrative center A city that um, has people coming and going by sea and by land. And he knows that if a church can be established there, just by the very fact that people come and go, the gospel will spread. So he's using the Roman roads to spread the gospel. Thessalonica, as you can tell, had a Jewish community that's large enough to sustain a synagogue. Now, think about this. The Jews are away from Jerusalem. These are Jews that, for for whatever reason, have been scattered. They are away from the holy city. They are away from the center of religious life and the temple. They are scattered. And where they went, if there was enough Jews, a synagogue was established. And probably not in Amphipolis or Apollonia, but here in Thessalonica, there's a Jewish synagogue, and it's Paul's calling to preach, to preach Christ. Remember in Acts 9, his, his conversion, he, he says, uh, we read in Acts nine fifteen, we read this, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. We read in verse 22 of Acts 9. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. It's interesting, right? In Damascus, the place he went to destroy the church, he ends up proclaiming Jesus. My friends, if you read the meanest, what is it, the meanest man in Texas... From this month's Table Talk, never be surprised where the gospel goes. Never be surprised at the kind of life God, by his word and spirit, can transform. So that's the mission. Paul's there to proclaim Christ in an important city. Now, let's take a look briefly at Paul's method. What does he do when he shows up in the synagogue in Thessalonica? Again, recall what Jesus did we hear in Luke 4 when he was in the synagogue. Well, let's look at the method. I want to highlight a few things. Uh, notice from the scriptures, from the scriptures. So, Jews and God fearing Gentiles would, would see the scriptures as authoritative. And therefore, for Paul, it's a starting point. It's, he, he's finding people that are familiar with the Scriptures. Because as we share Christ, we're going to run into two kinds of people. Some people familiar with the Scriptures. Do they believe it? Maybe not. But they might be familiar. And you can start there. Other people have no familiarity. And we'll see that soon, in the next few weeks. And, and the approach there. But he started from a point of contact. And for those of you who who think about evangelism and think about apologetics, kind of defending the faith, you know how important it is to, to find the common point of contact, to identify with someone and go from there. So for some people here in Bellevue, we're going to start with the scriptures. Anybody that comes in for a public worship service, they're gonna hear the scriptures. We're gonna start there. But for others, we start with observations of the world. When Paul goes to Athens, he doesn't initially go to scriptures, he goes with what he observes and sees. It's kind of if you go walk down Taylor Avenue to Fairfield Avenue and you hang a right or a left, you're gonna observe a lot of things. And those will be points of contact that you and I can make to an unbelieving world. But whether you start with the scriptures or you start with God's world, guess what? Since all truth is God's truth, it all leads to God. The true and living God. So he, he, he's using the scriptures and notice he reasoned with them. We read, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He engaged with them. Uh, one of the words used here is where we get the word dialogue. He, his apologetic here is described as revealing and setting before them a case. He both teaches and he invites. Um, the best kind of teachers I've ever had are the ones who lecture and then engage with the class, questions and answers. There's a, there's a time and a place for a monologue. There's a time and a place for a dialogue. And Paul seems to be doing both. He explains, and the word means to open. It's the same thing that we read in Luke 24 of eyes being opened, the scriptures being opened. He not only explains, but he proves. And that means to, to place before Uh, to give evidence to demonstrate and again if you remember that verse from Acts 9 22 Paul spent time in Damascus doing what working to prove that Jesus was the Christ the mission Paul had was clear the method was deliberate and both The mission and the method were in service, not of themselves, but rather of the message. The message, and that's where we're going to stay for the rest of our time together. The message, the same message, explaining and proving, and here's the message, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. It's the same message that's been going on since Pentecost. It's the same message in the hands of Jesus. It's the same message that Paul had earlier uh, proclaimed in chapter 13 in Pisidian Antioch. It's the same message. It's not a new message. But the message though it's the same it's it's always surprising isn't it always surprising are you surprised or have you and I gone to sleep when it comes to the gospel the same message the same surprising message and 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 here's the outline of Paul's argument some of you like logic and argumentation and so I'll try to get this as 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 clear as I can it's a A three-point argument. It's a this is that argument. He's going to talk, first of all, the Christ. And we're going to expand this in a moment. The Christ. and That's just point number one. And number two is Jesus of Nazareth. And point number three is he puts number one and number two together. And he says, this Jesus of Nazareth, of history, and the Christ of Scripture is the same person. In other words... This Jesus is that Messiah. So let's uh, think about this for a moment. The Christ. The Christ. Christ, Greek for anointed one. It's a translation uh, when the Hebrew scriptures went into Greek of the Hebrew word for Messiah. The anointed one. You remember in Israel, kings were anointed. Priests were anointed. And as we've seen in Luke 1 and 2 and as we've sung recently when we've seen things like uh, come thou long expected Jesus. Israel was, was on the lookout for the promised Messiah. All earnest Jews longed for the Messiah to come. They longed for the one who was David's son to sit on David's throne. Now think with me for a moment about David. King of Israel. When you think about David, what do you think? Do you immediately think Psalm 51, contrite, repentant, man after God's own heart? That's an aspect of David, isn't it? Or do you think of mighty warrior, king who at his command could almost do anything, maybe like take... Another man's wife. Maybe like arrange the murder of a man's husband. When you think of David, I think most people at that time, a king to sit on David's throne? Israel, we're going to be freed. Freed from this Roman oppression. Freed from all of the oppressors. We are going to have the man, the king, the Messiah. But he speaks here of this Christ who must suffer and rise, who must die and be resurrected. You see, both Peter had unfolded on the day of Pentecost and and Paul had summarized later in chapter 13. They had already spoken about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this divine design and deny and divine necessity. You know, the divine necessity, it had to happen. It must happen that Christ must suffer. Now, where did we get that? Well, we get that, of course, from Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 and Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 and Deuteronomy 21 about Suffering. Suffering. It, it, Paul is rightly convinced that this is not the tragic failure of one of God's prophets, but the death and resurrection is part of the necessary saving acts of God. So you've got it in the Old Testament scriptures. You've got it with Jesus before his death, right? Telling his disciples, remember Mark, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10 jesus three times has to tell his disciples he's going to suffer he's going to die and we heard post-resurrection jesus luke 24 twice to those on the road to emmaus and those gathered the christ had to suffer the christ had to die So the first divine necessity is that the Christ, the expected one, the Messiah, has, has got to suffer. But then, the second divine necessity is the Christ must rise. Where did we hear that? Again, the Old Testament scriptures. Where do we hear that? From the mouth of Jesus. Three times. After he speaks of his death, he speaks of his resurrection. And we heard it again in Acts 2, 24. All Jesus is doing is is, is he saying, "This is what the Scriptures say, and this is my life." And the, con- the climax and conclusion of the argument, again, is, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of history is the Christ of Scripture. You see, Paul is saying, Jesus fits the profile that fulfills the divine promises. He fulfills the divine plan. Remember, a moment ago, I said the message is the same, but it's surprising. You see, the disciples didn't get it at first. They were walking with Jesus, eating with Jesus, ministering with Jesus, and they didn't get it. The religious leaders who had access to the scriptures didn't get it. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus produces a new understanding of who the Messiah is, the suffering servant, the risen Lord. Um, so Jesus is both expected on the one hand, but completely unexpected in the other. What what I mean? If Jesus is the Messiah, what did your average Jew, what did your well-educated Jew think? Conqueror. Right? That's what successful people do, right? They conquer. They take care of our enemies for us. But what was not expected, what was quite unexpected... was the messiah to come the christ to come was not at first and physically a conqueror rather he was a sufferer wow you know in the navy i got myself in trouble a lot um One of my bosses used to say, you get what you inspect, not what you expect, right? In other words, inspect your troops, inspect your equipment, inspect your doctrine. Don't just expect. We're to, as it were, inspect the scriptures. What do the scriptures really teach? You know, um, We all have expectations, right? Where do you get your expectations? I mean, really? Newspaper? Social media? Your crazy uncle? Where do you get your expectations? My friends, if we are not getting our expectations from God's Word, God's Word which we can inspect then I would have to say that our expectations might be a little misaligned, you know? And this is an age-old problem, right? Well, we're not looking for a Messiah, but we may be looking for a political leader to hate our enemies for us, right? My friends, if our hope is in politics, if our hope is not in the gospel, then we are, of course, to be most pitied. You see... The Jesus that we don't expect humbles us to the core, doesn't it? It just takes us down. But you know what? The Jesus we don't expect also encourages us beyond measure, lifts us up. You see the gospel there in Thessalonica as it did in Philippi, as it's doing in Bellevue and everywhere else around the world, the gospel lays people low. And the gospel lifts them up. We heard it read, you know, God has to open eyes, right? We read that in Luke 24. Our eyes have to be open to see Jesus. Remember, those two people were walking with him. They were talking with him and they didn't recognize him Their eyes had to be opened to see Jesus. And and they remarked, weren't our hearts burning? There is a good kind of heartburn, by the way. The kind of good heartburn is when your heart burns with affection and attraction to Jesus. God has to open eyes just to see Jesus. He also has to open minds to know the truth of the gospel. He has to open their minds to understand Like Lydia, God has to open our hearts to receive the truth of the gospel, to receive Jesus. You see, it's no wonder that people are confused when it comes to Jesus, because God has to do a mighty work in us. But oh, church, let's not put things in the way. Let's have people reject the Jesus of Scripture, not the Jesus of our expectation or imagination. You know, it's a new year, but the gospel is still the same old, same old. Usually when I hear that, I'm thinking, next, bored, you know, But it's really wonderful that the gospel is the same old, same old. It's the message that your great 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 grandfather heard and came to faith. It's the message that your first, your third cousin heard and received and life changed. It's the same message, but it's in different times and different places. My friends, right now, are you tired of the message? Are you bored with the message of salvation in Jesus Christ? Are you looking to other things, other people, other accomplishments? Calvin's right. Our hearts are idol factories. And Calvin is talking about the idols that we manufacture in our hearts. And we all do. Because one of the reasons why I think we are bored with the gospel, we are tired and asleep when it comes to Jesus is because something else has our attention. Something else has grabbed us. What is it for you today that has grabbed you? It's the same message. Because it's the same man. There's one Savior for different people. You know, if you're confident that God has saved someone like you, then you surely can be confident that God will save others, right? Because anytime we speak of salvation, anytime we speak of someone being a new creation in Christ, it's a miracle. There is no of courseness. Even you children who growing up in a Christian home, what a wonderful blessing it is. Do not ever take that for granted But even covenant children have got to be able to say, it's a miracle that I believe. God has to open eyes. God has to open minds. God has to open hearts. God saves all kinds of people through the power of the gospel, the message, and the man. Well, you heard it alluded to earlier, but I want you to hear how Paul writes the Corinthian church in his first letter. Another city that he's going to get to as he continues his missionary efforts. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Moses, for Isaiah, for Mary, for Simeon, for Anna, for Peter, for James, for John, for Matthew, for Mark, for Luke, the woman at the well, a tax collector, a leper, the thief on a cross, Paul, Lydia, a slave girl, a jailer. For you, for me, and for countless unknown others, salvation from sin and death is found in Christ alone. It is in Christ And in Christ alone that hope is found, a sure and certain hope that cannot be taken away and cannot be destroyed. My friends, let us in this new year pray that God would be pleased to open eyes, minds, and hearts to know Christ. And in knowing Christ, to make him known to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Almighty God, would you be pleased to take the truth of your word as applied by your Holy Spirit to change our lives. Father, may your word and your spirit have their way with your people, with your church. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.